Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Gears, is coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan, Rockefeller Center, New York City. Newsstand Studios joined as usual with John here in the studio. How you doing, John? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you Yeah, yeah. Got uh, Joe rocking the panels. What's up? Hey, how you guys doing? Looking good. Oh yeah, well, I'm looking wet. I'm wet. Uh, we ha- so yeah. the murmurs you're hearing in the background uh, are Nastasia the Hammer Lopez is picking up in a car. Uh, Nick, Captain Oily, the oil man, olive oil Nick Coleman, uh, who's uh, going to be our guest from Los Angeles uh, this week. But strangely, like, she hit traffic in L.A. And I know that nobody could have foreseen that there would be traffic in L.A., but that's what happened. So they'll be in a stationary location soon, and maybe it will sound better. You guys can uh, hear me there okay or no? It's kind of like when you can't find a dock with your city bike in Midtown, and every time you're like, yeah, but oh, I make man, it. Yeah, I but I make it on time every time, Nastasia. I have not been late. Since we were at Voldemort Network. All right? That's not true. It is absolutely 100% true. 100% true. And, you know, whatever. I'm just saying. Uh, And we don't have Quinn today. He's trying to get his, uh, you know, from uh, Vancouver Island. He's trying to get his morning routine uh, back into some sort of normal schedule so that we can have him back on his normal routine, hopefully starting next week. And... Jackie Molecules is in Tokyo, and I would love to hear what he's doing, but he is walking home because it's 1 a.m. in Tokyo right now, and he said, hey, so he's there. How you doing? Hi. Hey. Konnichiwa. uh, Uh, I'm here. All right. So since since, – I'm going to leave that there. Since we we might lose you at any minute, although you sound – it sounds amazingly quiet. Are the streets dead? Are, like, streets, like, completely dead? They're not. I found a semi-quiet corner. I'm walking back to Shibuya. It's one in the morning. We just had delicious izakaya dinner and went to a one of these hi-fi bars. But mm. this hi-fi bar played nothing but noise and like really aggressive industrial metal and noise music. Oh, I don't like that for a bar. I mean, it was it was extremely Tokyo. I'll say that. Like like. Like old noise industrial, like stuff from the 90s that I would know or like new stuff? I mean, it was so noisy. It was just like screeching, you know, like industrial Merzbell? sounds. It was, a, it was hardly even. Yeah, yeah. Merzbell, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, that's unpleasant. Was it like, like I could Im- imagine like uh, if I'm trying to imagine the vibe. Was it also loud? Like what if they played that, but it was so soft? Extremely. Oh, my uh, God. That is why did you go to no, that bar? Did you not know? As soon as I walked yeah, in the door, I would have been like, nope. Uh, goodbye. No, I knew. I was I was kind of in the mood. I don't know. Oh, I wanted, I wanted to push push things. Yeah. There, there is no drink on earth that would make me want to do that. Unless, okay, was it 100% people who were solo or were there any other people there like you with multiple folk? No, it's always the weirdest people there. It's the second time I've been to this place. I came a few years ago. Um, uh, so it's a return punishment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, maybe it was the maybe it was the unpasteurized sake that we drank tonight that pushed us in this direction. Man, man. So you can't talk. You can't concentrate. Your ears are bleeding, and you're getting more aggressive with every second. Sounds like a perfect place to serve you alcohol. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Mm. Or is it like yeah. hyper craft? What's hilarious is then if they were very put together, like no. buttoned up high craft stuff. Oh no, it's just like po- like fast pouring out, like down your throat and out the door kind oh, of thing. Yeah. yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, just beers. They're pouring beers. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. All right. Well, at least 
at least you you don't have to theoretically enjoy anything. You can just do a fifteen minute in out, dip in, dip out. Pretty much, that's, mm. that's the vibe. All right, we'll talk about the food. Give me some food. Never, um, if, food, if we ever we go did, to Tokyo together, never take me to that place. I will not take you to that place. It's never. It would, it would not be good. Yeah, no. N- not but ever. there are really good listening bars. Uh, no, we, we went to Sushi Masuda. We had an incredible meal there. Um, we've had. Okay, what was the best and worst thing you had there? Was there At anything Masuda? bad? Was there um, anything bad? No, there wasn't anything bad. You know how, like, the omakases usually follow the same script? Mm-hmm. And it's like you get the tuna, the medium tuna, the fatty tuna, the eat, like it all goes in the same order. Well, what's the this special cool seasoning thing? They threw, they, they threw a lot of curveballs in. It wasn't even the same like run of show as the usual omakase. So really? that was cool. Like there were some cooked cooked courses in the middle of everything. And um, yeah, it was Wait, good. It was so really, you're, saying, really good. you're saying not just run, not run of the mill because there's run of the mill. There's run of the mill, run of the mill. Then there's seasonal run of the yeah. mill, and you're saying this is beyond even mm-hmm. seasonal run of the mill. Yeah, like the when Nastasia and I were there, everything was that freaking like pike that like you know whatever that like with the one with the million bones that they have to chop up like a, like a thousand times to cut through all the tiny bones so you could eat it. And we were like, we get it, we get it. It's only in season for two weeks. Why do I have to be here during those two weeks? You know what I mean? Like what, what's yeah. the what's the thing no, that's hyper? We had, uh... Abalone, I think, was um, mm. one of the yeah one of the more interesting courses uh, in how, that meal. How'd they do it? A big old big old piece of abalone, basically. I think it was steamed. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, steamed or boiled. It was it was a big old piece, um, uh, and it was really good. And was it uh, was it on the chewy side, tough side, tender side? It was more tender than I expected it to be. Yeah, best abalone I, I ever had was in Hong Kong. Super super. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Best. Oh, my God. Huge, yeah. huge. Like you say, not like pounded into oblivion like we get here in the in the States most of the time. And like just yeah. freaking so good. I don't know what they did to it. I know it was like, I, you know, they were like taking them from live to my plate, but I don't know what they were doing to them. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. I have no idea what they were doing except for making them delicious. I don't cook that stuff because I will say this. Lastly, Dave, we um we had conveyor belt sushi today, and I'm I'm, I'm curious to know how you would uh, handle that experience. Well, Joe is very pro. Like two- Joe is very pro. He oh, gave, really? Yeah, he gave the he gave the the truck horn the truck horn motion. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay, I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> delicious. For me, it was too much because it's like I just want everything, and mm-hmm. when it's coming in a conveyor belt, I have no self control, and I'm like, oh, another another salmon roll. Yeah, why not? Sure, okay. Mm-hmm. Eel, yeah, let's do it. And then next thing you know, I've had twenty plates of sushi, and I'm feeling sick. You know, I have no self control. What's that? Uh, what's that eighties song? Yeah, self self control. Da 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 da. You got it going through my head, but I can't remember what the actual song is. Da da da. You lose yourself. You lose your self control. What song is that? And the night. You know, it's not like what is. Uh, what's this song? It's like eighties. Anyway, now you got to go through my head, but like only snippets because I can't remember the whole song. <laughs> Woman sings it. Uh, anyway, uh-huh. it's like it was from a movie or some crap. Anywho, uh, my feeling on it is uh, get some self-control, my man. Right? I mean, the good yeah, thing fair, is, is I, can, I can just hit the eel real hard. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if I'm yeah. one of those things, because first of all, let's be honest. Everyone's like, ooh, uh, you know, it's a good te-. Like everyone's like, oh, the the the. The tamago's a good test. See whether they make a good omelet. 
But, you know, I like them at the end, but I don't want to pound a lot of those early on, right? You know? And then mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, the eels are good. But really it's not because 99% of people just buy that thing, right? And then are putting it on top of the, right. are putting it on top of the rice. And I have to say, standard, like the standard, like uh, uh, unagi is really good. It's good. I'll eat the hell out yeah, of it. It really you know, is. I mean, like, you know, you know what I mean? I'll take that over. Uh, what, what To you, what's the filler? What's the one you wish you hadn't picked up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm looking at Eliza and wondering what the filler was. That's rough. The shrimp was good. <laughs> Sometimes the shrimp can be the filler, but this shrimp mm. was pretty good. Yeah. Are you? No, do you like the cooked shrimp or do you no, like the, the the raw sweet shrimp? No, raw, yeah. raw, raw, oh, raw. Baby. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm not like a big tuna guy, so I, I took way too many pieces of tuna. Which style? Uh, you know, otoro, the fattiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This stuff where you get the least of it per fish, so you're trying to make them extinct as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, it's very inhumane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I, you know, all of those tuna things, I like them a lot. Oh, my God. The demos. Oh, my God. The demos they used to do back when the Gohan Society, it was like hooking up with all the fish purveyors and the Japanese restaurants in New, in New York City. The French Culinary Institute had the most ridiculous demonstrations. And so they, back when Kindai tuna, I don't even know if it's still a thing, was claiming that um, they were claiming that they had completely like closed circle tuna farming. So not like, you know how like when you get farm tuna, really what they're doing is catching juveniles, putting them in a pen and overfeeding them, causing pollution and then harvesting stuff that's really wild caught, right? That's how it works. So Kindai was saying that they were doing closed cycle farming of tuna uh, and that they were the first people that did it. And they brought a giant whole one into the FCI and then like butchered it. For, and we were like eating the eating the cuts right out of the butchered tuna. And, oh my God, was it delicious. So I'm saying I love the product, but I tend not to order it just because like, I just don't want to be a part of it. You know what I mean? I, I love it. If someone serves it to me, I'm not like, I won't eat that because I obviously will. But I'm like, I feel, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't order it. I haven't ordered it in a long time. You know what I mean? Well, when it's on a, con- when it's on a conveyor belt, you know, yeah. someone's got to take it. Yeah, I'm with so. it. What are your feelings on the tuna that's been hard gassed so that it looks like, uh, it looks like uh I don't know. I can't even describe that color, like ketchup color or whatever it is, like that, like super bright color. What are your feelings? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. No? No. Yeah. What are your feelings on – oh, I know what I was going to say. The sweet shrimp – here's the thing. Like if it's thin, like big pieces of it, there's a certain texture to uncooked like – decapod crustaceans, like uncooked lobster and uncooked uh, shrimp. It's kind of like weird because it's, it is resilient, but also kind of pasty at the same time. If that makes sense. It is. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I don't know if I can get behind the paste. Uh, When it's good, it's good though. I don't know. When it's good, it's good. I mean, I love seeing like a tank with the the shrimping all like, and then like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, you've been murdered for me. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you eat it right away. I mean, it's good. (laughs) You ever, you ever, when you're at the beach, pick up a shrimp out of the water and eat it? No, never yeah. done that. Wait, you haven't done it, John? John's also no, shaking his head. Yeah. You with your gray shrimp, your Belgian gray shrimp, you yeah. never ate one before you brought it to your grandma? No. What the hell, man? I don't know, dude. I was like 9, 10, 11 years old. That's prime time to be yeah. like, that's a shrimp. No, those things are also a pain in the, <laughs> ass to pe- pain in the neck to peel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't need to. I guess not, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Especially a little uh, écrivis. Uh, no, that's a crevette. Crevette gris. Grease? Yeah, grease. Yeah. Are you guys talking about like you guys literally catching wild shrimp like with your hands? Yeah, when you're at the beach, you look down if it's if like so if it's near low tide and you're on a flat, right? Yeah. You look down and your feet are only in like a like a couple of inches of water. Sure, when like it's a that, tidal pool. Yeah, when it's that thin, you can see the shrimp. Sure, but they're freaking fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have Give a bucket. Up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 So you're not just your hands. No. No, no, no. Wild no, no. caught no. shrimp. Hand, I mean, hand caught wild shrimp. I mean, like, you know, look, my legs were fast, but my hands were, my legs were slow, but my hands were fast. No, no, I'm not like that. Like, uh, I, but you know, when you were a kid, you never like hang out in a river and try to catch minnows ever. Yeah. I didn't ever eat one of those. It just didn't seem appealing. No. And also the Hackensack River, so polluted. Like I was barely allowed to put my hand in the Hackensack River when I was a kid. It was so polluted. It was just one stream of mercury. It was like, you know, Yum. the worst, the worst. Uh, all right. So how much longer are you in uh, in Tokyo there, Jack? And what else do you have on your docket for? I'm here, here till October 10th. Oh, so good long time. So a week. Yeah. Are you uh, going, yeah, going yeah, to any other well, places? Yeah. Are you staying in, uh, I mean, there's enough to see in Tokyo for, you know, months, but are you going anywhere we else? We are no? deep diving. We're deep diving Tokyo. Yeah, we're going to stick around here. We may do like a day in Hakone, but um, we're pretty much here. So. Mm-hmm. Do you have any really like off the wall food stuff that you're going to do? And or beverage? Lo- so I, ha- I have a friend here who is, best described as a bon vivant, I'd say. Mm. And he claims to have some good leads on very good bear meat. And I've told him the mm. only thing I've heard about bear was from you. And you said it wasn't great. Not the bear we had, the bear we had. The bear you had, right. Yeah. He yeah. claims that the bear, he knows hunters and he said, no, the bear in Tokyo is so good. I'm going to find you something. So yeah, but it's, all, it's all from Hokkaido though. Something. There's no bears in Tokyo least okay well true enough true yeah, enough yeah, yeah. true enough the bear meat is here but the yeah, bears yeah. are not here yeah, yeah. well listen i want to know <laughs> i want to know when you when you get the bear i want to know like first of all i've you know heard the paw is a delicacy i don't know how it's cooked i'm assuming braised uh i want to know uh, where the bear was from i want to know like kind of what age the bear is and like what makes good bear and bad bear right because my bear huh. no good no good yeah, so so I've heard. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping to get the good bear here. I, I so saw we'll an interview with uh, Zimmern where he was asked like, what meats, and he says he's never had a muskrat he's liked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all right, uh, muskrat, delicious. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Oil, uh, are you guys stationary yet or no? Yeah. We're stationary enjoying enjoying a fine pastry. <laughs> now, of course you are. Uh, so, Nick, uh, first of all, <clears throat> welcome back. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your wonderful program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you recording this so that we can get something that doesn't sound like you're talking into a uh, into a bucket? I don't know what you're asking of us. <laughs> yeah. So there's this thing on your phone that allows you to record your own voice. And then, uh, you know, I know you musicians probably aren't down with it. And then send it to us so that we have a higher quality voice file for the people who are listening later. But let's just assume that you're not. Uh, I am completely unaware of that reality. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so speaking of that, you're in Los Angeles to uh, play music, are you not? What are you, what are you doing there? You, uh, you're playing with Action Bronson, the bass? I am playing bass with my band, 
which is uh, Dr. Baklava and the Human mm. Growth Hormone. Yeah. And uh, also in L.A. to be on your show. On it. Oh, you could have done that in New York, my man. So you're not, so this is a separate tour from the one you were doing before. This is the fall tour. Yeah. Right. In other words, but you, before you were playing bass with Action Bronson, this is just your band, which he is not a part no, of. No, no, no. The, it's, the band with Action Bronson is called Dr. Baklava right. and the Human Growth Hormone. Which are you? Are you the Baklava or the Growth Hormone? I'm, I'm one of the hormones. Oh, you're one of the hormones. All right. Human growth hormone. All right. I like that. HGA. Mm, I see. I see. Uh, now, what kind of bass do you play? Uh, normally, I play a left-handed 32-inch Carl Thompson olive wood bass. Of course, um, it's olive but wood. But in this band, I'm playing a 1998 Epiphone reissue of the Gibson EB-1, a.k.a. the McCartney bass, mm. which is a 32-inch left-handed four-string bass but it's violin-shaped. Yeah, weak. Uh, listen, uh, on your olive wood... I, I hate that bass. Listen, I detest it. That's fine. Like, people like it. Like, not my style. Listen, uh, on the olive wood bass... What is, is, it, is your it, style? I'm an old... I'm I'm Fender P-Jazz guy. Oh, uh, James Jamerson style? Yeah, yeah, come on. Or, like, you know, if I have to do something different, like a Stingray. Anyway, uh... So listen, and uh, I have four string only. I'm glad we can agree at least on four string. It's uh, you know, a bass. Yeah. Equals. Yeah. Well, four string. People my age, right? So like, I'm of the age when bass, quote unquote, became important again. So like, everyone started moving to like five and six strings. I was like, I was like, if you can't say it with four, you don't need to say it. You know what I mean? I'm having enough trouble with four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I used to like a fretless though. Yeah. Could you play? Well and beautifully with intonation and and grace. Uh, that was not the style of music I played. <laughs> uh, be- okay. Beautifully, I wouldn't say beautifully, but yes, I was technically extremely proficient. Um, yeah, fretless is a whole other game. Yeah, the uh, but uh, the olive wood bass is it one of those ones where the it's a uh, the neck is through body, so the, like the, the neck extends all the way through, and is it one of those kind of situations or no? It's not a bolt-on, but it's not a neck-through. It's, it's a Carl Thompson signature style. They're, they're each handmade one by one by Carl himself and his very small team in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. Mm, mm, Brooklyn base. He built a bunch of guitars for Lou Reed. Mm. He built guitars for Les Claypool. He built the guitars for Hank Williams III. He's the man. So he's not, uh-huh. a, he's not opposed to making a ridiculous bass if he makes them for Les Claypool. Does he make them with like the, all the weird curly? Didn't Les Claypool have all the weird curlies on his one of his basses? That's, that's, those are all Carl Thompson bass. Yeah. Same guy. Yeah. Les Claypool, man. I wish, I don't know, whatever. Let's not get into it. I don't have time to discuss my feelings on Primus or my feelings about Primus on this show. Otherwise, it would be Primus issues, which we can't talk about. Are you also doing, uh, doing Bansuri at the same time? Do you ever, like, drop the bass and Bansuri up? I, I keep the bass slung around my chest while Bansuriing it. Um, sweet. Yeah, sweet. Love it. Uh, Let me ask you a question now, uh, just so I can get a feeling for you. Feel me. So how high are you one of those people that, like, has the bass up around their neck? Or are you one of those people who has the bass down low or somewhere in between? So I'm not a Krist Novoselic, which is the low knee level bass. Right. But I'm also not a Victor Wooten, which is like the chest style bass. Mm. I'm a little more like the Johnny Greenwood, where the bass is kind of right around the belt 
but the neck is coming up almost like an upright base. So I have my fingers right next to my eyes. All right, so, so it's kind of. So, did the, so if you're going to do that, the reason to do that is if you're the kind of guy that pushes the neck in and out as you're playing with like with the rhythm, like like so you can have it up there and like move back and forth. Because if it's it's harder to do when it's low down because the angle is. Also, I never really liked the angle of a. I never really played also with the neck parallel to the ground because what the hell is that? Like you're, it's not ideal for your fingers. It sucks. Yeah, it's not a machine gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll, if you're played too low, most people I played too who play super low are either just, just like two finger it or picking it the whole time. They can't, they're not doing any like super interesting right hand work or for you left hand work, but <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I got nice, but it's all about almost mimicking like the upright basis in the sense that they just stand there and the, the neck is totally vertical. It's like, how do you kind of get that from an electric bass while standing up? And I actually think this uh, EB1 um, reissue thing is really good for that. Yeah. The dumbest bass thing I ever did was I took my original bass, my first one that I ever bought, which was a 1980, uh, like a 1988. I think uh, Fender, Japanese Fender P Jazz with uh, Active Electronics it was raspberry colored, so it was cost me almost nothing because nobody else wanted to buy it. And I cut, right. I cut into it a little place so I could put an extra high string above the low string so that I could I could tune it like a like a bass banjo, and it sucked. I ruined it. I ruined the bass. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. I really wanted that whole banjo thing to work. And uh, yeah, it just didn't. They make, they make a bass Joe. Yeah, but I don't know. Just because like, I was doing a lot of bass work towards the end, where I was doing a lot of you know, like a lot of like you know, three three finger, like three finger, like the the, the two bottom fingers go up and the thumb goes down, kind of fingering. Right. And um, right. so I thought maybe with that extra banjo string, I could do some cool stuff. But it turns out instead, yeah. what I what I was doing was ruining my bass. And then I stopped. And I didn't even have time to get good with the ruined bass because then I stopped playing with a with a band. So whatever, whatever, you know, it's, just, it's a life. You, ru you, you ruin everything anyone and it's over. There, what? Anyone out there is thinking about playing an instrument? Just just do it. It's really the best thing to have in your life to be able to express yourself through music at any given moment. And if you buy an instrument, even like a cheap instrument, you just like take the most basic care of it. There's no reason it won't last a lifetime. Yeah, that's why when I bought my son, uh, you know, or helped him buy a guitar for, you know, Christmas or whatever it was, I got a good one because it's not going to go down in value as long as he doesn't abuse it. And mm -hmm. it's and it's a, a pleasure to play. Aren't they sitting on the floor of your storage unit? No, no, those are my bases. Oh, okay. gotcha. No, uh, I, I bought him a non, so the standard guitar for, the standard like just blank guitar for like a kid in our neighborhood, his age is some form of Strat. Ocaster, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Not a, it's not the a various yes. Strat Ocaster, yes, right? Uh, not a lot of Telly people, so I was able to get him a really good deal on an American uh, Fender Telly, because ain't nobody want a Telly around here. And I was like, plenty of freaking amazing people play Tellys, and it's a great guitar. So. Did you get him a thin nice. line? Uh. Was it? It was an American. I forget the what it. It was a specific one that Does was. Does it have the violin cut out? Mm, no, I mean it looks like an old standard telly. Oh, it doesn't have the violin cut out, so it's not a thin line. Yeah, it looks like a standard telly, but it has. Uh, 
something about the I forget because I can't picture it in my head. The the, bri- the bridge is a little bit different from a standard telly. It's like some sort of upgraded whatever. It sounds like a telly. It looks like a telly. Right, right, right. Is a telly. Yeah, tellies are classic. I love the simplicity of the tellies. Yeah, right? I'd take it way over over, over uh, a Strat. Really? Oh, my God. I can't stand Strats. Really? I don't like it. I just don't like them. They just I sound like the P90s. I'm like so tired of it. Here, here's, the, here's the other thing, right? Like, my, like, everyone's like, I need that whammy bar. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah, you'll, you'll just go out of tune real quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, why would you, unless you play the kind of music where you need to be like, wee, wee. And first of all, like learn to bend yourself, man. Learn to use your hands to bend the freaking notes. And if you need to, like do the, do the neck murr. You don't need to like drop your strings down to nothing and then pull them back up and pray that they stay in tune. You just don't need it unless you're playing a very specific kind of music, in my opinion. Unless you're, what's his name from Flying Breeder Brothers, who has got that built-in B bender on his B string. Wait, just on the one string? Just on the B string because you can't bend down. Look it up. I mean, but you can bend down. I was you can't bend up. Oh. Oh, yeah. You can't. It's hard to bend the neck the other way. Because <laughs> it's got this built-in thing. As soon as you talk, as soon as you pull on the neck, it bends the B string for you. Oh, it's awesome. You can bend. I want to say you can bend down by starting the string and, and, and uh, go. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 right, right. You pull the, you pull the note pulled on the neck. You know what I mean? Oh, my Before God. Before you hit the string and then. Let it go normal, and you've bent down. But yeah. look it up. The B bender, it's all built into the strap. So as soon as you push down on the neck, the strap has a built-in mechanism that bends the string for you. Mm. It's awesome. I like this. Great. Ba- ba- bass and guitar issues. Welcome to bass and guitar issues. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So let's talk about oil for a minute here, Nick. So I have ordered one of your oils uh, using the using the Patreon using the Patreon discount. So uh, people should know, if you're on Patreon, one of the things you get is a discount on uh, Nick Coleman's fine oils. But I, you know, I follow you on the, whatever it's called, social, social idiocy that we all use. And uh, you, and I haven't tasted it yet, so I can't speak to it, but the pitch on it, first of all, you had me at Centrifuge, right? And uh, I was like, I got to try this oil. So I have it, I have it coming. So why don't you talk to me about this oil? This oil is, uh, so in May and June of 2023, I was down in Chile sourcing fresh olive oil from a couple different producers for a few releases we were going to do. The one we did before this was a monocultivar nocellara oil, early harvest when the olives are very green and young, where there's less oil in the fruit, but it tends to be more grassy and vibrant. The nocellara olive hails from Sicily, yeah. but uh, this producer in Chile grows it and they harvest it very early, and that one's more leafy and herbaceous and vibrant. The one we just released, which is a ojiblanca oil, which is typically that olive comes from Spain, when harvested early, has distinct aromas of peach and almond and is on the sweeter, kind of more fruity side. It's not as grassy and bitter and peppery as the Nuchalara. So we just released the ojiblanca last week. And um, it's really good. And then I'm gearing up to go get oil, uh, like, end of October, first week of November. So, you, and you, that'll be northern here. That'll probably be in Italy, or, or maybe I'll go down to Sicily, maybe Spain, maybe Greece. Must be nice. Oil. Must be nice. Listen, but you also said that this person in Chile uses a non-standard technique that removes oxygen from the process and keeps it, or something like this, keeps it even. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's important. So a lot of people think that you should buy first cold pressed olive oil and that it must say that on the label. However, this is a myth. Think about it. This traditional cold press method is sort of outdated. Most of the best producers don't use that at all. <clears throat> Instead, they use a modern method where they cold extract the oil. And here's the difference. In the traditional method, the olives are crushed with granite wheels and the olive paste oxidizes during that time. Then that paste is put onto mats called fiscoli, which are these fiber-woven mats, and put into what looks like a 100-layer lasagna. And then it is pressed in a hydraulic press. What comes out is about 20% oil, 40% water, and the remaining 40% are the pit skins and pulp left over on the mats. However, those mats are really difficult to clean, and they can leave unwanted residues, and the olive paste will pick that up during the pressing process. So for a few reasons, this traditional method is, is really outdated. In the modern method, the vacuums, they go through a malaxation process where the olive paste is churned, and in that, it's a controlled temperature without oxygen. And then it runs through a centrifuge that separates the oil from the water from the solids. And then you get the finished product. And you can get sharper oil from more ripe fruit with this cold extraction modern method. Uh, it's more sanitary. And it's much faster, which matters because during the harvest, as you're harvesting the fruit, you want to transform the fruit into oil as quickly as possible. So the speed at which you can mill the olives and turn it into oil is, is critical as the harvest goes on for many weeks. And some producers will have two or three or even four processing lines so they can crush the olives and transform the fruit into oil, you know, if, as efficiently as possible. But you're saying the higher-end Italian folks aren't necessarily using this technology. It's more New World folk. No, no. The high-end Italian all over the Mediterranean, they're, they're using this technology in Spain, Italy, Portugal, France, Greece. Not everywhere, but most of the world-class producers, like 95% of them, are cold extracting the oil. In Italian, it'll say on the bottle, estrato a freddo. Mm. But a lot of producers still make it say first cold pressed on the bottle, even when they're cold extracting it, because they know the American people are told to buy first cold pressed olive oil. So I'm just, but, but it's not reflective of the process anymore, so... There's kind of an issue with the labeling and having that be accurate because in the olive oil labeling world, we're basically in the wild, wild west. Hmm. I think that the title, if I ever write a memoir, should be called Unwanted Residues. What do you think? Um, I think you're me a memoir you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unwanted Residues. I love I that. Your memoir titled I'm Me, parentheses, as if. <laughs> Um, and then the, 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 whatever the follow-up is, I can't even, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so talk to me a little more. Uh, I was thinking of trolling you for a minute and saying that, uh, you know, I remember the time you told me that color indicates flavor, but I it just wasn't worth it. Cause I it just wasn't worth, it wasn't worth trying to troll you. What? I know, I know because you, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Opposite, opposite. But like, I, I get decided. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I decided color, not hey, to. Hey, people out there, let me tell you right now. The <laughs> olive oil police is here. Color is of no bearing of the quality of the oil. The proof of the oil is always in the smell and taste. Greener does not mean better. Sometimes a really green-looking oil can taste like mud. Other times a golden yellowish oil can taste really grassy and peppery and clean and vibrant. So never judge an oil by the color. Always the smell and taste. 
and professional tasters will taste oils that are dark blue snifters, so the color is obscured. But uh, the green stuff's better, right? Mm. Dave, <laughs> 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 oh man, you know what? You're the you're the you're the like. This must be what it's like to talk to me. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to push my buttons too. So, you know, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so how does a nocellara taste different when it's grown in, first of all, is there more difference, let's say, Chile to, in other words, is, it dis, is the difference between a nocellara from Chile and Sicily because of Ch- Chile and Sicily, or is it just because producer to producer and like two people growing it next to each other in Sicily could have entirely different results? Definitely two people growing it on the same hillside next to each other in Sicily, where one of them is pruning the trees properly and harvesting at the right time and getting the fruit from the tree to the mill in mint condition as quickly as possible. will have a wildly different result than someone who isn't pruning the trees properly, harvesting too late and um, kind of damaging the fruit in the process from tree to mill. So everything matters with olive oil because you can't correct anything in the aging process. It's really the moment the oil is extracted, the game is over. So everything building up to that is really, really important. Um, the climate's different, obviously, and in Sicily it varies too. Just so you know, the Nocellara olive is the same olive as the Castelvetrano olive, which is a table olive. But when used for oil, it's called the Nocellara. And the Castelvetrano olive, you know, graces charcuterie boards all over the world. But most people don't realize it's the same fruit as Nocellara. Now, some olives are used for oil and others are used for the table and some cross over as both. And the Nocellara or the Castelvetrano is one that is used both for table and oil. I have to say, I did not know that. Oil I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. But when you said Grace is a charcuterie, like all of our pinkies instantly went out. Like all of them. Pinky out. It's amazing. Grace is. So, uh, so, yeah, no, no, there's definitely a difference, but it. Yeah, honestly, the fruit varies from producer to producer, even in Sicily. So it's impossible to define it. However, um, when har- the Nocellara olive really, when harvested early, gives you those leafy, grassy, vibrant notes, and it cuts through sauces and brightens up grilled seafood, and absolutely one of the great cultivars for oil production. I, and I love it. I, I love it. Famous. Yeah, oil. I mean, like, uh, I mean, like, I only really could name, I think, three like standard Sicilian cultivars for oil, and Nocellara is my favorite. What? Yeah, are you? Were you going to say the Bianco Lila and Cherasuola? Yeah. There's also one called the Girafa, which is this really, really cool uh, olive fruit that is used for tables. Some producers make it into oil. There's a great producer there called Mandranova that does the monocultivar Girafa olive called the giraffe because it's like the draft because the tree can grow to be very tall. And uh, that has this almost like chlorophylly, lettucey, cucumbery note to it. Really nice. Hmm. Hey, I had a question a couple of weeks ago, but you weren't on or maybe months ago. And at this point, someone was uh, one was trying to process their own olives. I don't know if you like work with the table olive like concept at all. And the other uh, what about the people who are trying to do their own like mini oil pressing? Because uh, I know that there's a big spate of that. Do you have any feelings on that? I know we discussed it a little last time you were here in the studio, but I wonder if you've thought any more about it. I think, I mean, the idea of quote unquote doing your own oil pressing, are you talking about just like smashing olives through a cheesecloth or something? No, I mean, people like, now, you- people now oh. make, people now make a little like, 
press that you can use like at home. I mean, in general, I, my feeling is you're probably not going to do as good a job as someone who does this for a living, but I think people want to be able to do it just to, you know, kind of see what the procedure is like and kind of like get a feel you're, for you're what's talking going on. like a, a tabletop milk. Yeah. I think that's more to just like, have like some producers have that and they'll do it. It'll be a tabletop mill. I think it's called the MC2. It's just like really cool. There's like a little centrifuge and then a malaxation and then you can get the oil. But that's just to determine when to start the harvest. And you would never mill serious olives that way. And it's really hard, like the milling of the transformation from olive to oil is so crucial. And you can lose so many volatile aromas in that process if you don't do it with an experienced miller with good machines. And it's not just the good machines, because you can have good machines and an inexperienced miller, and they can do a really bad job and give you bad olive oil. So it's a combination of someone who's very familiar with the process of extracting oil on the specific machines that they're using. So I think this tabletop stuff, like, yeah, you can separate the oil, but, you know, that's not really where the good juice is at. I don't think it's getting the uh, Nick Coleman glasses of approval. And it doesn't sound like it's getting the Nick Coleman glasses of approval. If someone told me, hey, I'd like to sell you some olive oil, I'm pressing it in my kitchen, <laughs> I would question a lot. But you'd put it into a you'd put it into a blue glass, drink it all the same, and let them know. Oh, we'd let them know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's get some let's get some oh, one more question on olive oil. I noticed the other day, uh <clears throat> Uh, you know the the Partana Corporation, the you know rel- relatively large, like uh, oh yeah, yeah yeah. So they did a, uh, a what's it called a a collab collab. How do the kids pronounce it? Collab or collab? Collab. 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 Thank you. Mm. Collab with uh, Mission Chinese. They did a a, a, a chili and like an, like a Calabrian chili oil, right? Now, I'm assuming that they do it unheated, right? And so the standard person when they're making a chili oil is heating it. But what do you what are your thoughts on uh on like cold and cold infused uh olive oils? Obviously not to your super fancy stuff, but in general, do you have any soft spot for this kind of concept? There's a difference between infused and macerated. Okay. And I think the best ones are macerated where the olives and the chili peppers, like the pepperoncino, the olives and pepperoncino are actually crushed together in the mill. And what comes out the spout is the chili oil. And I think that's a much better way to do it than just like infusing olive oil after the fact. So uh, I think if you can get that agrumato method where they're crushed together, you can get good ones. But typically, not always, a lot of these like infusions or macerations are with like second rate olives. So if there's something they maybe the olives are a little too ripe and they're not going to give you that much aroma or vibrancy in and of themselves. That's what producers will use to make a chili oil or a lemon oil or a basil oil. Because if the olives are really great, you'd never want to do anything to kind of destroy the extra virginity of that, of that oil. Um, that's it. They don't always do that. Um, but the best way is when the fruit or the herbs or the peppers are macerated with the olives at the moment of extraction to give you, um, in a way, like the freshest, most amalgamated lipid with any flavor profile you want to combine with the olives. And does the color come through there too or no? Yeah, and then it'll be like red right out of the spout. So what's a good producer? 
of that. Yeah. I bet what they just released together as a collab is really good. All right. Then, uh, then another one is uh, another one I love that does it really well is uh, Frantoy Cutrera. They're a Sicilian producer in the southeastern part of Sicily in the region of Chiaramonte, where they grow this interesting cultivar called the Tonda Iblea olive. Tonda coming from the word rotunda, meaning round, and Iblea from the Iblea mountains where it's grown. Those olives, when harvested early and are primarily green, give you distinct aromas of green tomato leaf. Ooh. And they have a, I love their just extra virgin olive oil, the Monte Iblea DOP oil, but um, it's called Primo. But, uh, but they, they also have a whole, like, infused and macerated line that uh, is, is really nice. Mm-hmm. There you go. Straight from, uh, straight from the grease man's mouth. Not grease, oil. Par- pardon me, pardon me. How's the soap business going? It's about to be uh, about to hit the streets. Yeah. Nick Coleman, craziest, craziest person in the world, doesn't use his old oil. Doesn't take the oil that's about to go bad and makes up. No, he's like, I only want to use oil for soap that I would drink. Is that still your position? Yes, because skin is the largest organ in the body and deserves the nutrient-rich properties of extra virgin olive oil. Nut basket. Love you, man. Crazy. All right. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's get some questions. Xander says, uh, Dave mentioned he might come to Berlin. In fact, I am. I won't be on the show next week because I'll be in Berlin. Uh, would that be a public event? I don't know. Uh, Xander, uh, anyone that knows me personally knows that I have no idea what I'm doing there. I have no earthly idea. I'm assuming I'm going to put a Spinzol in there in my backpack and go to Germany, and then I'm going to go where people tell me to go. Really, honestly, I have no idea. John, this, this checks out, uh, right? Yeah, no, that's 100% true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, speaking of, the engineering build just came through. We got the Ooh. engineering build, and it looks really good. couple of mistakes. The wrench needs to be changed. The lid cap they got wrong, but overall, good. Nice. Yeah. Exciting. The front face is not what it used to be. We, we're going to run a – Nastasia, you want it? Should we talk about this or not? Yeah, do it now. Do it. Rip the Band-Aid off. So here's what happened. Uh, <clears throat> we did not tell the people who had ordered a Spinzol – that we were having this quote unquote contest about if you ordered more than one, we were going to like put you in to get an engineering build just as a, as a bonus. Cause we assumed that you were a bar and you needed multiples anyway. So we never notified the people. So now we, so a, it wasn't useful for what we thought it was for, which is to let people know that like, if you have multiples in for a bar, we're going to put you into this contest. B, uh, listener, you know, Sargon pointed out that it's illegal to have a contest without. So what we're going to have to do is say, you know, we'll start like a one week thing where you can either mail an Applehead doll to Quinn's P.O. box in Portland, Oregon, right, to enter, or you're automatically entered. We're going to send an email. You're automatically entered if you bought more than one uh, Spinzol. And then we give you like a week cutoff date. And then after that week, we tally all the crap and I'm going to use a quantum. There is a, there is a, a random number. There are several now, but there's one out of Australia. That's the original quantum vacuum, random number generator. And it's actual. Cause I don't want any of you fools out there to say that I used a pseudo random number generator. I am using random numbers based on the fluctuations of the quantum vacuum direct from Australia. So all you do is you put in the number of units from one to whatever, however many units and spits out a random number. So we'll do that live on, uh, I don't know, Instagram or some crap. And then, you know, we will 
So anyway, so it's going to take us a little bit, but that's what we're going to have to do, which is st-oo-a-ped, but it is what we're going to do. Uh, and remember, I have to say, no purchase is going to be necessary. Apple head may be necessary. No purchase is going to be necessary. And uh, the object has no commercial value because it's an engineering build. Is, it, is that all I need to say, Stas, or no? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. it. All right. Anything well, you want well, to add to that? Hmm? What? We're also sending an email out with Quinn's address to mail things. His post yeah, office Apple box. Heads, it's yeah. his post office box. But please don't yeah. send him random stuff because then he has to forward it from his post office box in the United States to Canada. It's a huge hassle. So don't just start like sending random things to Quinn in Portland, Oregon. All right? No offense to Portland. Right. Uh, all right. And also, can you talk about how he does his pressure cooked uh, – Carnitas that he mentioned a few weeks ago. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So uh, um, whenever I cook pork shoulder, I don't have time. So I always pressure cook the pork shoulder and I think it's good. Right. The trick when you're pressure cooking anything uh, is that you get no reduction. Well, you're not supposed to get reduction inside of the pressure cooker. So what you have to do is you have to get some form of liquid in the bottom of the pressure cooker so that you can build up pressure uh, before it it, it uh, scorches, right? So typically anytime I'm cooking something in a pressure cooker, I make sure there's like liquid at the bottom and anything that's going to thicken it up, I put on top so that it doesn't meld together until the thing's already at pressure, right? So when I do, for instance, my carbonade, which is not pork, but I, you know, the bread and all of that crap sits on top and the beer is at the bottom so that it comes up to temperature and it will amalgamate during the cooking, but you get, it. it's not thick, at the beginning. Anyway, so yeah, I just, uh, you know, get a pork shoulder, cut off the meat, uh, cut out the meat, cut out, you know, cut off the skin, the bone, cut the meat into slabs, salt it. Uh, and then I add uh, cumin, orange zest, uh, oregano, smashed garlic, black pepper, and orange juice. Uh, you mix it up, let it sit for, you know, an hour or so, salt on the skin, and then you put everything in the pressure cooker with the skin on top, uh, along with, you know, some liquid so that it comes up and I cook it for like, depends on how thick those meat slabs are, but 25 to 30 minutes at 15 PSI, take out the skin and the bone. Uh, I then take the skin and I crisp it up separately. When I'm doing chili, where I'm serving the sauce, I, um, I blend the skin into the sauce, but this isn't a chili. This is like a, there's no chili base here, right? So then with this one, then you let it cool in the liquid, it absorbs all the liquid. Then you pull it up and you, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Pour off the liquid, shred the meat, put it in a pot. They can't save the, they get the oil off the top, add the liquid back to the meat and then it's service time, crisp it up. That's it. Simple. Billy Thunder wants to know, are there any plans to release a book slash ebook that has the drink specs from B, uh, BDX or existing conditions? Even if it is something bare bone, like uh, bare bones, like Chad Austin's, everyone has an effing cocktail book. No, nope. Uh, I mean, no. Nope, no. Uh, I mean, maybe someday, but I've got so much on my plate now that the thought of it even makes me ill. But if you have a specific spec you want, just ask us. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, we have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, what's up, Dave? It's Josh from Norfolk here. Hey, what's up? How's Norfolk? How's Virginia treating you? Oh, it's great. You Wait, know, you say nice Josh? Nice getting into fall weather. Yep. The Josh? Uh, if you're talking about spins all tattoo, Josh, that's me. Ding! Oh my God! Oh my God! It's, uh, 
It's amazing what a text message to your tattoo artist after a bottle of wine will do for you, you know? Oh, wow. Man. Oh, man. So, so for those that don't know, if you... Uh, so Josh has a tattoo that says, all I do is spin. Like, you know, DJ Khaled. You know what I mean? It's so like every time I think about it, I have, you know, I hear in my, in the back of my head, DJ Khaled. You know what I mean? And then like you have, all I do is spin with the thing around it and the spins all. It's amazing, man. So like Nastasia, like, I don't know, we're going to, Nastasia loves it. Right, Stas? Yeah, we're sending him a hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are definitely like, you know, you're, you know, you're on the Christmas list, man. That's like serious, you know? <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. So what's up? I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, calling in, calling in with a sandwich question for you. All right. Um, oh, wait, listen, and- we're going to have this argument. So his social account no, is a hot not, dog is a sandwich. All right. But we, we know we disagree about question. this. All right. Okay. So my, uh, my bar and my friend group have been racked by this, um, on a hot sandwich. So let's say like a burger or a chicken sandwich. Does the lettuce and tomato go on top of or underneath the protein? I got something to say. All right, Nick, what do you got, man? I'm out in L.A. I have the famous, you know, double-double animal style in and out. They're putting the cute, they're putting the pickles and lettuce and tomato under the patties. Mm, you're displeased, I can tell. Talk to me about why you're displeased. I, no, it's delicious, but, but it's, it's counterintuitive to the traditional method, which I think is on top which may be a bit messy, but the trick is, first of all, I don't know if a hamburger is a sandwich. You call it a ham. Who calls it a hamburger sandwich? A B. I think it's fundamental to wrap the, these burgers or sandwiches. Like even at home, I'll take parchment paper and wrap my sandwiches, which allows the dressed vegetable product to like sort of, it doesn't fall out. It doesn't drip out. You collect it and you end up eating it. So I think I like that, above or below the protein, not as important as the product having a wrap to it. All right. Well, I mean, like, I, I'm not going to co-sign wrapping, whatever. Here's my feeling. My feeling. Professional sandwiches are wrapped. It's because you have to get them home. No, it's, it's more. It keeps them together while you're eating it, too. And it collects okay, things. Here's what I do not like. Getting paper in my mouth. Well, you have to be an adult and decide yeah, where the food uh, yeah. is and where the receptacle yeah. is. No, 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 no. Wrapping it then now, now. It's, anyway, but here's the more to Josh's question, right? It completely depends on the sandwich. First of all, what kind of substrate is it on? Is there anything protect? How juicy is the is the, the a fried look? A fried chicken sandwich isn't going to sog out your bottom. So you can put your lettuce on top because it's going to taste better. It's got better texture, right? If you're talking about something and it's a, if it's a smash patty, it's not going to sog out your, your, your bottom. If it's one of those thick, juicy suckers, then I like a little bit underneath. Or if you're doing like anything like a, like a BLT where it's going to be very wet, I need an underlayer of, of lettuce to protect the bread from sogging out. Like, which is also why you no matter what you're going to do to the outside of the bread, toast the inside because it protects it against sogging, right? I actually, most of the time, don't like the outside toasted unless it's a grilled cheese because I value the roof of my mouth. Uh, But, so it totally depends there. I'm going to say the power move is a slice of lettuce underneath 
for uh, prevention of sog if it's a soggy thing and actually finely shredded cabbage on top is the is the money lettuce. The best lettuce on a sandwich is finely shredded cabbage, in my opinion, for fried chicken especially. You have fried chicken in, in my head, but like fried chicken sandwich, finely shredded cabbage on top as the lettuce to me with the mayonnaise is like, you know what I mean? And then if you're Nick, you can wrap it in something so that you're chewing on paper the whole time. I think the pickle is required with the fried chicken sandwich as well. I prefer, I always prefer some form of, um, some form of lactic, some form of lactic uh, fermentation in my sandwiches, whether it be like, uh, so like, for instance, I, I like sauerkraut on things, even burgers, right? Uh, but then what I'll do is I'll put a little sauerkraut on the patty itself because it's going to leak like a bastard unless you've pressed it and then put some form of uncured leafy product on top of it to try to shield everything from the, from the mess. You know what I'm saying? I like, I do appreciate some form of lactic. What are your thoughts on dressing the vegetables before they are placed onto the sandwich so they get their appropriate treatment and aren't just kind of like raw plain on a sandwich. Yeah, well, it totally depends. Like, so in the aforementioned shredded cabbage, you better salt the whole pile, right? Before yep. it goes on. Uh, but like whether it's got, because I mean, God, look, anyone who thinks they can fix a cooking problem by seasoning a, like a large composite after it's done is mistaken about how cooking works. You know what I'm saying? It's like, just make each individual part delicious and then make the composite also delicious, right? Like that's, I mean, yeah. I think that's the only way to, to work. So on things that want to be, on things that aren't good without said dressing, then I would pre-dress, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I hate when I get a sandwich with to like a BLT and they haven't salted the tomatoes. No, they, 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 they're, not, they're not real people. They're, 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 they're some sort of simulation or cyborg. They've never eaten anything. It's an AI making you a sandwich. The tomato must be salted, right? The tomato must be salted, and I say peppered because I, if I don't have pepper on my BLT, black pepper, I'm upset. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, then uh, you must also salt the bread where the mayonnaise is, in my opinion, lightly, right? So then that gets the lettuce, which you put on both sides, and you shouldn't use an overly salty bacon, right? So the bacon should be edible on its own. If the bacon is, is so salty that you're using it as the salt, you've already started from a bad position, right? So the tomato should be properly salted for its own existence and peppered. The only thing that I don't salt is the lettuce because I put lettuce on top and bottom for sog and taste reasons. And uh, I salt the bread and mayonnaise instead of the lettuce. That's the only thing that I, I, will, I will brook having not be seasoned in a BLT. Was this helpful at all, Josh? And I'll be wrapped. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know how you wrap it. So what I do is I like, I like so BLT, my BLT, to me, the ultimate BLT, you have to eat it hunched over because so much juice is flying out of the tomato as you're eating that you're creating a lake underneath on the plate. And yet you're, you've made such a good sandwich that the bread itself is not getting soggy because you have the two layers of lettuce, the protection of mayonnaise and toasting, right? And so as you're eating it, like this like atrocity of tomato filth is on your plate and you can't put the sandwich down. A, a pro, to me, a proper BLT cannot be put down after it's been picked up. 
You have to wrap the sandwich solves all these problems. I don't know, man. I don't know, but I don't want I don't want that. I want, you know, it's like when you eat a lobster, right? A lobster, if you if you're if you can wear a dress shirt while eating a lobster, you aren't eating it right. Unless somebody else is cutting the meat out for you. You like anyone next to you should hate your guts while you're eating lobster because they should be coated in goop. Like in other words, like there's certain things that just aren't supposed to be meat. Many professional sandwich shops, even if you eat the sandwich in the facility in which it's made, the sandwich will be delivered to you in a receptacle of wrapping. And then I instantly take the wrapping off. All right, Nick, what's your favorite? So you what's your what's your, you eat? what's your favorite burger-like product? Burgerloid. What's your favorite burgerloid? There's only one. To else. make at home? Like, no, can no, I no, 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 no. I'm gonna I, no. Right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you something that's not a hamburger, but it's got a hamburger patty in it. What is it? I don't understand what you're asking. A patty melt. Patty melt's the answer always. <laughs> patty melt. Patty melt. melt. It's God. It's it's God's burgerloid. Thing is delicious. That is was handed down on the tablets. They chiseled in patty melt because it is so good. I love patty melts. Patty melt. You never had a patty melt? I don't you know. What what is the difference oh. between a okay and a patty? Yeah, a patty melt is rye bread and then, in my opinion, caramelized onions crossed with a hamburger and a grilled cheese sandwich, but with, you know. Well, that. the rye bread's griddled. Well, it's a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, yeah. So you, you make the patty, right? Then you put it with the onions and the, and you know, cheese. Some people disagree about the cheese. I, I Swiss it, but, and then rye, and then you make that like it's a grilled cheese sandwich, so it all melts together you put the patty in and it melts together and that is a sandwich that should be trying like it should be cross cut like not in half it should be caught cut on a 45 bias got it yeah uh, uh, well, i'll tell you right now what? go to groveinvite.com and type in cooking issues at checkout and get 10 percent off anything we sell Night. Uh, well, you're supposed to pay for the Patreon for that, but thanks. <laughs> uh, and whatever. Uh, Matt, Matt from Mystic. Matt from Mystic says, uh, curious on Dave's thoughts how to execute uh, this type of lunch while also keeping rice bacteriologically safe. And what it was was a kimbap, kind of a New York City. This person was making like a rice roll with seaweed, like, you know, or if, you know, Japanese style onigiri, but not filled. And the answer is uh, you need to get that pH down. You need to acidify the rice. Uh, so commercial people tend to take their pH down to about 4.1. But the actual magic number for room temperature rice is pH of 4.6. I was not able to find on the internet anyone who said, add this amount of vinegar to this much cooked rice and you will achieve this pH. So the people in New Zealand, what they do is you test three or four batches. And if your numbers are consistent, then you only have to test one batch every uh, two weeks. This is if you have a HACCP plan. Uh, the standard way to measure it is to take your acidified rice and mix it uh, three, to, three to one by weight with water and then take a pH of the slurry. Right, uh, pure water. Uh, so if you if you get a pH of four one, you're probably safe. Uh, pH of four one is safe even if it's kept at like thirty seven C, so like body temperature and above. And pH four six is uh, totally safe. On a study I read called the efficacy of sushi rice acidification quantification of Bacillus cereus and Clostridium perfringens during simulation of retail practices. Uh, if you keep it at room temperature, four point six is fine. Uh, someday someone's got to get sodium bisulfate. 
8 8 not ite which is the preservative 8 which is the acidifier that is not uh doesn't taste sour and then we could sprinkle it in and make everything uh acid as hell without it tasting sour but anyway or you could just do like jiro and over freaking you know acidify everything uh how many seconds i got left oh all right paul gersman i answered your question on the actual social media about where to get house alpens products like burr house alpens is so house alpens has some delicious products burr so delicious uh hopefully quinn has emailed you your stuff um, Simon, I'm going to have to get to your flower questions later. It's quite complicated. And Minwa, I'm going to get to you uh, next time on uh, nitrous oxide versus nitrogen. And I promise not to talk too much about uh, American gladiators when I do it. And oh, my God. Can I say one more thing quick? Uh, Science Slut wants to know if you can use a milk separator to uh, as a centrifuge and lose something like a Spinzol. I've tried it with home uh, milk separators, like the plastic ones that people buy when they have like uh, like two or three goats, and uh, didn't work. Sucked. And I'm gonna get your stuff, Sev, on your peaches later. Apricots, cooking issues. Mm-hmm.